Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, movers and or shakers. Welcome to the all-inclusive, undiluted, flavour-enhanced Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And it's time for your prescribed weekly dose of all the latest news on the freshest ideas on the planet. And here to tell us all about it, our boffin of all things gadgetry and new age, it's Matthew Dickerson. How's your week been, Matt? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Whether you're a mover and, and or, or shaker. shaker. Well, I'm just leaving it open. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that's three groups of people that we're talking about. <laughs> that's a good and we're isolating the and not or the um, none of. There's a Venn diagram in there somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've had an interesting week. There's been a few things that have happened this week. A couple of things about listeners. We get rankings through about where our listeners are from and where we rank in various locations. And we've just started hitting the rankings in the Republic of Korea. Hey, how yeah. about that? So to all you Korean listeners out there, thank you. Thank you, But yes. that's one that I haven't seen pop up in the rankings before. We seem to rank well in various places around the world, but Korea. So that's quite interesting. That's wonderful. Yeah, we've got a far-reaching arm. And, and I go to the other extreme. I was out running along a track the other day just out near our river and I got pulled up by someone who was just out for a nice morning walk and said, guess what I'm listening to at the moment? And it was Tech Talk <laughs> with you and James. You go. <laughs> so going from to be recognized. one extreme to the other, from very local, literally right there talking to someone who's listening to us, and people obviously in Korea, lots of people in Korea. The other conversation I had during the week was with Saul Griffith. Oh, really? I was at a conference and Saul was one of the presenters. That's very cool. And I've seen some stuff from Saul before, and obviously Saul for... Those that haven't come across all, go and Google him, have a look. But he's a renewable energy advocate. And he's written some books and done some stuff with well, the We've talked about government. the electrification of the public. You know, they're, they're slowly, by, slowly and surely, we're going to be um, gradually going more and more electric. And it won't be in one big hit, but it'll be by drips and drabs and it'll happen. And what I was impressed with most about his presentation is I love to see information and data to back up what you say. You make some wild mm. statement, you make some overarching statement, and then you walk away, hold on, does that sound right? But when you make that statement and then back it up with data, with information, with figures, with research even, yeah. then I've got to give that a little bit more credibility. And that's what the presentation Saul gave was full of, was all this background information, all this data, and even just the transformation of the average household from an energy perspective. So Saul had this graph there that talked about the amount of energy a household uses. So this is the energy of gas for your stove or your hot water heating, for example, mm. and petrol or diesel for your vehicles and electricity to maybe run your lights, that type of thing, and then transforming all that energy. So forget the type of energy or the form of energy, but you've got all this energy a household uses, mm. transforming all that just to electricity and then how you may generate that and what that does for the bottom line. And the thing that I talk about a little bit, but I haven't got all the data and information to back me up like Saul <laughs> does, but I talk about this a little bit, that I think there's a good long-term saving, dollar saving to be made by the average person to transform their lives. Well, I'm hearing that more and more from a number of different sources as well, that um, yeah, you can compare what we're doing with coal power and or you know, fossil fuel power and whatnot. I guess yeah, we're getting our electricity from coal power, but um, yeah, that there's... Um, the efficiency in, in, for example, our renewables is much greater than the efficiency from coal power. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what he talked about was that we can transform our entire society but do it cost-effectively because the cost of that power 
is cheaper, hmm. but he said that the thing that scares people, and we've talked about this before, is that initial ticket price. Go and get rid of your petrol car and buy an electric vehicle. Over a four-year time frame, you're going to save money. But the upfront price, that's what hmm. scares people. Hmm. That's that's too expensive. Or go and change your stove from a gas stove to an induction stove, for example, very efficient induction stove run by electricity. Well, again, sure, over a three or four-year time frame, I'm going to be in front. But right now, I've got to find the thousands of dollars to go and buy that stove. Mm. So what Saul talked about was transfer that cost of paying for your various other forms of energy, transfer that into finance, transfer that into bank loans and interest, and society will be better off, but you eventually as an individual will be better off in the long term. Mm. So it's an interesting way of looking at it. But I think the scary thing about it was while I was sitting in a conference with hundreds of people, the groans around me from different people and just the mutterings from people, this guy's lost it, this guy's got no idea, what about that? How are we going to do that? Uh, I'm looking around and these people look like reasonable, sensible, intelligent people. And I, I must admit I struggled to hear what was coming out of their mouths because he's presenting the data. Saul had the data, the information there, and yet they're still thinking this guy was some crazy loony. But change is sometimes hard to deal with. Yeah, I think I think that's probably all there is to it, really. But but the mutterings that I've been getting is it's going to be up to government, whether it be it local or you know, state government or even federal government. Um, the change is going to be much less up to them, and individuals it's just going to be easier for individuals to to move over themselves. From what I've heard in other sources, yeah, yeah and sometimes people get that attitude, don't they? Well, what's the point of me doing anything about it? Yeah. I can't do anything about it. What's my one little change going to make? But if Everyone said, let's make that one little change. Wow, their society well, changed. Yeah, but but the cost of solar power, for example, is coming right down. And so you can start to see that you'll make savings if you've got solar cells on your roof. Yeah. That it actually you don't have to wait for 25 years before you start to recoup your costs and things like that. So, you don't have yeah, to wait for the government to tell you to put solar panels on. <laughs> you can actually right. do it all by yourself. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And so yeah. this is what's going to lead the technological change, I think. Yeah. Anyway, mm. interesting week. Hmm. Oh, well, okie dokie, it's time to get uh, busy with our first story then. Stock take is going to be a hectic time in any store, big business or small. But for mammoth enterprises like the big city supermarkets, keeping on track of what is on the shelf and what needs restocking requires round-the-clock monitoring. So Woolies in Wetherill Park are trying something new and have installed 500 cameras to watch movement of stock on the shelves in an effort to keep the customers happy. Matt, how's this going to work? Well, I'm a bit confused by this, and I haven't been able to find out the answer. I've been looking at this story all week, and I thought the whole idea of a point-of-sale system was that you scan products out, Mm. and you can tell at any time how many widgets we've got in stock, how many of any product is in stock, and, of course, have some automatic triggers to say we need to reorder that stock or we need to restock our shelves. So I'm a bit confused as to why Woolies and Wetherill Park has has decided to put 500 mini cameras throughout the store. And when I watched some videos on it, they look like they're a great system if you didn't have stock control. (laughs) So so you've got some mini cameras. They're the size probably of about a button, if you like, a small button on a shelf. And it focuses on the shelves on the opposite side of the aisle. And then it uses a bit of AI just to look if there's an empty space there or there's products there. And then once it detects there's an empty space, it alerts someone in the warehouse to go and fill that particular shelf. So you've got that shelf there. It seems like an overly complicated way or a, hey, let's use technology way of solving a problem that I thought stock control would solve. The only thing I started to think of was maybe the shrinkage, the theft in a supermarket is so high 
that they can't rely on their stock control systems because their stock control says, we've got 17 of those in stock, and they look at the shelf and it's empty. So maybe mm. they lose that much with other ways, with the old five-finger discount for people, yeah. that maybe they've got to have these. But what I looked at in terms of the technology, it looked pretty interesting. So ignore the stock control question, pretend we don't know about that or you can't have that solution. Having cameras around the store that take a snapshot every hour, and that's exactly how they work. So it's not filming across the shelves. It's just every hour, take a snapshot. And then, again, it detects an empty Is the consumer going to trust that, though? Well, the consumer doesn't care that much, presumably, because it's just a matter of the staff restocking the shelves if they're empty. But the the one thing I suppose consumers might be concerned about is the privacy side of it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So so um, in terms of uh, conspiracy theorists and people who are uh, uber paranoid, um, getting their photo taken or whatever. That's right. So you don't want to be sitting in front of the camera, picking your nose, the photo goes, mm-hmm. and then next thing you know, all across the, the internet is you know, James Eddy picking his nose in Wetherill Park. Hey. <laughs> they've, they've said uh, that um, the images, if they do accidentally happen to capture a person, they'll be shaded out or anonymized to retain privacy. So presumably it'll just be a random shopper picking their nose, not James Eddy <laughs> picking his nose. Uh, so that, that's certainly one concern that people would have. But again, I'm interested to see, I want to look at this story again in three months' time to see if they're still using it, to see how effective it is. Mm. It does give you an idea of how good we're getting with our cameras, a small camera taking very accurate photos, how good we're getting with our AI to detect different things that are happening. In other words, oh, there's an empty space there. Whether we need it or not, again, in that stock mm. control question, I, have, I don't know. But it does sound quite fascinating as a, an overall detection method. I think we can see other ways you might use this sort of detection. But then I thought always that uh, they had people walking the floor checking shelves as well. So is this to cut down on the amount of staff that you've got walking the floor checking shelves? Definitely. Yeah. I think that's one of the objectives of many large organisations, to cut down the number of people doing anything. Yeah. I mean, the self-serve checkout. I know some people, friends of mine, who refuse to go through the self-serve checkout at a supermarket because they figure that's one less person they might need employed in the supermarket rather than someone at the checkout to actually scan products manually. So there's things like that as well. But it's just interesting to see, I think, how we're going with cameras and detecting things automatically. Mm. Self-driving cars. Do you trust them? Well, regardless of your answer, yes or no, right now you're probably picturing yourself in the passenger seat looking out of the windscreen across a blank, almost featureless dashboard. No pedals on the floor, no steering wheel, no driver. That's trust through and through. But there's more to this gargantuan social shift than just coping with the ride. What about the trust required by absolutely everyone else? You see, anyone can choose to hop in or not. But what you're not going to get to choose is whether a driverless car will drive by you or towards you or around you. That'll just happen. In the lead up to the worldwide driverless car revolution, Nottingham University has been investigating the reaction of pedestrians to ghost drivers. Matt, how did that that go down? Really well. All right. Good eye. Yeah, that's all right. Next story. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One of the things I think is interesting when you get people who innovate is you think about something that's very technical, like a driverless car. And so you get people who are good with their technical solutions, very hmm. binary, if you like, computer programs, that type of thing. So they're very left brain dominant. But then dreaming up ideas and dreaming up solutions seems to be a bit more artistic. It seems like it's a bit of a, a right brain sort of person that comes up with that. So when you've got researchers doing work on driverless cars, 
my initial impression of those people is that they are very much programmers. They're very much dealing with ones and zeros, yeses and nos, yep. no gray area. So this researcher coming up with some type of solution to say, let's just work out how people react. Because as cars get to the point where they're driverless, we need pedestrians that trust these. How that's are we right. going to do things that make them trust them? And so they didn't have a driverless car. So that's a bit of a problem for them to go out and do some <laughs> testing. So the researcher got dressed up as a car seat. Oh, really? <laughs> it really did. And it looks brilliant. It was a car. It looks right, brilliant. Okay. He, I actually watched a video of him getting dressed up. and So he had a nice grey area on and had a little square helmet that he put on that looked like the <laughs> backrest of a car. Yeah, okay. And you then looked at images from outside the car and you went, yeah, it's a car seat. It looked absolutely brilliant. So he, <laughs> he moved the seat right back and leaned the right, the normal seat right back and he just sat there holding the steering wheel at the bottom and just drove the car around. So that was thing one, if you like. Where, very, very still. Where <laughs> That's right, didn't move much. Where they just had to come up with something to replicate a driverless car. Then they dressed up the outside of the driverless car. So they put some various instructions on it. Hi, you're being watched by a driverless car. Hi, I've seen you. Just some images like that and some various add-ons around it that were doing nothing, but they made it look like a driverless car. Some cameras on top, some flashing lights, all sorts of bits and pieces to make people think that this was definitely a driverless car. And one of the things that I found fascinating was, and I do it myself, if I have a car stop while I'm going across pedestrian crossing, I just give a little wave, a little nod, a bit of a, a thank you, a bit of a silent thank you because the person probably can't hear you, they're listening to Led Zeppelin or something inside the car. <laughs> And people knew this was a driverless car. There were messages all over this car. There was obvious gadgetry over it. You knew this was a driverless car. Still, people just gave it a wave, gave it a nod, a bit of a thank you to the yeah, driverless right. car. <laughs> so thank you, Mr. Robot, who doesn't care whether I'm thanking you or not, for actually letting me go across the pedestrian crossing. So that was one thing the researchers found really interesting. They then not only just videoed, so they had video cameras on the front and back as, as well, just to watch the reaction of people. Car goes through, did the people turn around and go, oh, that was a little bit strange. But they also had people with clipboards hanging around and after they went across the pedestrian crossing, they said, hey, that was a driverless car there. What did you think of the reaction? How did you feel? Was it trustworthy? Etc. Etc. And the researchers at this stage, they're still putting all this together, but it really seemed to be that you wanted some way as a pedestrian to know the car, in inverted commas, saw you. And I'm a bit the same. When I am on my push bike in yeah. particular, if I'm coming towards a car and I've got the right of way, I want to see the whites of the eyes. I want to mm. see that person to know that they recognise me. They're looking the other way and I'm thinking, they're just going to drive straight. Yeah. I might just slow down a bit here. You see them look at you, some sort of recognition. Okay, good, they see me. And that was what people wanted to see as well. With a driverless car. Well, it's what we've we've learnt as we've evolved with cars as well. That yeah, you, know, you just cannot just trust. Yeah. Um. And I had a friend at university who used to say, "Cars will stop," and so he would just cross the road. <laughs> Is he alive now? <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, I've I know when the kids were going through doing their their driving lessons when they were growing up, I was always used to say that right of way can be given but can't be taken. So yeah. you can't just take right of way and assuming everything's okay, you've got to be yeah. given it by someone else. And that's, that's right. exactly the case with a car. You've got to wait until that car gives you your right of way. Yeah. You, know, you can have all the rights in the world, but if you're in, in hospital with a broken leg, well, we've, we've learned all these subliminal lessons, uh, yeah, from oh, subliminal or otherwise, um, you know, explicit lessons uh, from the age of being young children. Yeah. And so now it's just intuitive. We yeah, just know right. that we've got, we need some acknowledgement that we've been acknowledged. Yeah, that's right. So they'll develop a paper on all of this and they'll be 
distributing that out to various companies that are making driverless cars. But I think the real lesson, and again, they haven't finished the paper yet, but the real lesson that I saw from the initial testing was that the car has to say to you in some way, shape or form, visual, audio, something, I've seen you. And then Mm. you feel okay. If you don't get that, then people aren't going to, like your friend, they're not going to just step out onto the pedestrian crossing because they're just mm. not sure that that driverless car has seen them. But it's a world we're going to have to get used there to. There were no aggressive Luddites who are kicking the, the doors <laughs> of the car and <laughs> no, trying to protest against technology taking over the world. And, and, I, and I do wonder whether they were doing a fair sample space because they were mainly doing it around the university campus. Right. So there were a probably different group of people to normal society. You've got a bunch of university students, maybe they're younger, maybe they're looking for innovation a little bit more than the average person. So maybe take it to the streets next and see how you go, maybe then you'll start getting Well, there. I think with this driverless revolution, I think that it's going to take some weaning. We're going to need to get used to it and mm. it's going to have to ha- happen in small stages. Baby exactly steps. right. Yes. Mm. You may have heard about this next story on the news recently. The Beatles are headed back to the charts with Paul McCartney raising John Lennon from the dead and releasing a brand new song with some never-before-heard never lyrics. Matt, not so much dabbling in the black arts going on here, but a bit of AI-assisted creative flair, shall we say? Isn't it incredible? We're still talking about the Beatles. Yeah. They haven't been together since the 60s. And we're still talking about John Lennon was assassinated in 1980. And here we are, 43 years later, still talking about the Beatles and John Lennon. So there was a tape that Lennon made that had a few songs on it. Yoko Ono had it. And on the tape, it was basically written for Paul, for Paul McCartney. Mm. And from that, they did actually pull two songs off it back in the 90s, back in 95 and 96. They pulled off Free as a Bird and Real Love. And there was a good enough quality on that tape that they could pull John's voice off that. They could take the music from that and use the other living Beatles that were there at the time and have two new releases of the songs. I don't know how well they did in the charts. I don't remember those two songs in particular. Mm. But there was a third song on there and the quality just wasn't good enough. They couldn't extract John's voice well enough, and so they gave up on it. They said, look, we've got two songs 15 years after John died, so that's okay. But now, here we are 43 years later, and Mm. McCartney's obviously been approached by someone with some pretty clever AI, and they've said, we reckon we can take that other song that wasn't quite good enough quality before, pull John's voice off it, pull all the background noise out of that, then put together a song that you can actually make as a Beatles song. It is amazing. And it gets it gets better or worse, I'm not sure which. Apparently some of the background noise is from where Lennon was doing some of his recording. There was a bit of electricity noise in the background. It wasn't a great recording studio. It might have just been a little studio he had in his home kind of thing. So that noise in the background, that was pretty easy for AI to pull out because mm. it was at a fairly constant frequency. So, well, that's easy. We'll get rid of that. Then other background noise and then clean up his voice. We haven't heard it yet. But Paul McCartney's talked about it and said, there is one more coming, one more Beatles song to come. (laughs) This will definitely be the last one. But it gives you an idea of the power of AI. There were some pretty clever producers back in 95 and 96 when they released those other two Beatles songs. People that have had their head buried in the music industry for decades. Mm. And they were able to work some magic with those two songs, but they couldn't quite get it with the third one. But now you throw a bit of AI into the mix. Here's John's voice. They gave it some samples of John's voice. That's what we're listening for. Go and pull that 
and get rid of everything else. And that's exactly what they're doing. Now, again, I'll be very interested to see how it sounds and how close it sounds to John's voice. Having said that, Paul McCartney in an interview recently did talk about the fact that there are lots of new Beatles songs out there, Paul. He's been approached by lots of people where they've used AI to recreate John and Paul's voices, yeah. the Beatles sound, and they've created new Beatles songs, a bit like you and I did for our 100th episode where we just did a bit of yeah. AI and recreated our voices. <laughs> People have been doing that with John's voice, with Paul's voice, and Paul said, I've heard some of these songs, and they sound pretty good, but it's not me. It's not John. It's yeah. just AI creating and it. And then what does it become? It becomes people feeding off someone else's success. Mm. Um, to create uh, something new, and and there's a lot of, I don't know, is that art? Is yeah, <laughs> how do we how do we regard that? That's the question, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Taylor the Swift, artist? Taylor Swift has been quite clever. She said, "Use my voice if you like. Use it for AI. Just give me a cut of all the sales <laughs> that you get out of that. So <laughs> let's adapt it and let's embrace it." Mm. Mustering cattle in a helicopter in the top end looks like an absolute hoot. If you've never seen it before, and I'd say hats off to the pilots who make all those close-range swooping and diving, it seemed like an absolute breeze. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, imagine an, uh, an October magpie in a primary school playground, but with a helicopter and you're getting close. That is some airborne maverick skill right there, folks. Now, while pilots make it seem easier than parking at a Westfield shopping mall, there's some major danger money being paid there. A difference of millimetres lies between a job well done and instant death. So now, in an age of drone technology, a stockman can still show their airborne finesse, but without putting their life on the line, which has got to be good, Matt. Got to be good, and you're right, those helicopters do seem incredible, but the... They can turn them on a 10 cent piece and swoop and duck and dive like that crazy October magpie I was talking about. (laughs) The longevity of these helicopter pilots, though, is not great, so there's a fair bit of danger there, and it costs a lot of money to run a helicopter. It seems to be the most effective way over the years. There have been horses and motorbikes and side-by-sides, four-wheelers, all sorts of things tried to round up the cattle, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of hectares of cattle stations here. We're not talking mm. about just the outside block and going around the cattle up with the cattle dog. Yeah, there's a reason why they're using helicopters. <laughs> That's right. But again, it does get expensive and it certainly is dangerous work. So there's one gentleman up there who's come up with this concept of drones, but the problem with drones is that if you're going to fly a drone around some of these large areas, you've got to have an expensive license to fly when it's out of view. So there's certain rules. If you just want to grab a a drone from your favourite white goods retailer, then there are certain things you can do and you can only fly above a certain or below a certain height. You have to be able to see it all the time. Visually, you'll be able to have to see it. And then if you want to get licensed to be able to go and fly in certain areas or fly with it out of sight, it can get expensive. And this particular person who's fairly young in the scheme of things and has been involved in cattle stations and grown up around them, I suppose, He talked about this idea, and so to get a a license to be able to do all of this in a drone or with a drone, about $40,000. Oh, wow. Yeah, and probably takes, you know, maybe six or 12 months to actually go and get that because it's not just a simple little thing to go and tick a few boxes and sign a form. So he started to think, can I somehow commercialise this? Can I create something that will allow drones to fly, go and do the roundup, the mustering like a helicopter would, but using drones, 
without someone having to go through all this process with licensing. And so, again, we start to talk about AI, we start to talk about these drones going out and doing it, and that's exactly what he's developing. He's called it Sky Kelpie, which I <laughs> quite like the idea yeah. of, with a, with a Kelpie obviously being a, a form of dog that would often be used for cattle mustering. So Sky Kelpie is the plan. And what he's found in some of his testing so far is a few things. For a start, the cattle don't get as freaked out as they will with a helicopter. Mm. So a helicopter moves the cattle along, but you can imagine, you're out there minding your own business in the middle of hundreds of thousands of hectares. You don't see a lot of machinery, modern technology out there. And for a cow to see suddenly a helicopter in the air, yeah. it would be a fairly confronting thing. So they obviously start running away from it, which is the whole mustering, but creates a fair bit of stress for that particular cow. Well, I was cow. actually wondering about how much a cow would worry about a drone that's just buzzing about the place and is it enough is it intimidating enough to make them want to shift well apparently yes but these drones are probably not the drones you'd get from your white goods no, retailer they're no. a little bit bigger than those drones they've got to fly for longer you you don't want to charge it up every 10 minutes or have a bank of batteries you come back and change it every 10 minutes these are going out longer distance and bringing the cattle back in so they're a bit mm. bigger mm. so it's a small helicopter if you like it's not yeah. quite that big but a, a cow would still be a bit concerned about this buzzing noise around them and start to move away from it because it sees some sort of danger there. So that's the first thing they found was that less stress for the cattle. The second thing was that they could actually do nighttime mustering because you can use infrared cameras. So now oh. instead of having cows running along in the heat of the day, doing it at nighttime, middle of the night, means you've got less stress because you get less heat exhaustion or less possibility yeah. of heat exhaustion from a cow. Wow, so That's really clever. That is. So now Sky Kelpie will end up being, and at the moment they're in trial stage, but what will happen is you'll have a small group of drones, depending how many cows you've got to bring in, how larger areas you'd have more than one drone, you have a small group of drones and you'd set them off in the merry way and you'd say, go and bring the cows in and here we are over here, this is where I need them to be. And you'd essentially take your hands off and let them go and do it. And they'd bring it in. And again, I see the middle of the night thing being really effective. And it's probably easier to see a heat map cow, in other words, a open area with spots of heat, yeah. rather than looking at a brownish cow on a... Camouflaged, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I hear what you're saying. On a brownish landscape. So you're looking at a camera trying to see those and going, oh, there's navigating there. through trees and whatnot. Yeah, well, yeah. putting a lot of trees out there. There's probably a few, but not many. But yeah, again, I think that'll be where we'll see. So very clever technology, but also the ability to let the technology take care of it rather than the human having to go and learn all the skills to get those drones being used. Hmm. an ergonomic keyboard. I'll say that again and I'll pronounce those words properly. Do you use an ergonomic keyboard? How important is it to you? There's a couple of questions you don't often get asked, I'll bet. But whether it's by it's something that you never really thought about or if you're an ergonomics dependent type of person, it's all about to end abruptly as Microsoft is pulling the pin on manufacturing. Matt, they say you don't know what you've got till it's gone. I'm shattered by this. I am you a are fan. a devotee, aren't oh, you? Absolutely. I remember when they first came out. We're talking about 1994 they first came out. I don't remember if it was exactly that year that I got my first one. But I read an article on them and it did make sense. Rather than your shoulders coming down and your arm being at an angle, then your wrist twisting. And I'm doing it here as we talk, which is no good to anyone else but you, James. <laughs> no, I can see. And folks, it's extremely effective gesturing, yes. <laughs> None of our listeners can see that. But... 
the idea of that angle on your wrist while you're sitting there touch typing has got to create some form of stress. So mm. I read the marketing hype and surely a company like Microsoft wouldn't lie on their marketing hype. So it must have been well researched with medical staff, certainly. So I, I like the idea that your wrist was just straight as it came down to the keyboard. And it did take a little bit of getting used to. Mm. But what I found after I used one for not that long, if ever I sat down at a normal keyboard, I felt a bit cramped up. I felt like my hands were too close together. Yeah, okay. But they, they, when they were new, they were pretty ugly. They've gotten a bit better looking over the years, but they were very ugly. And I know people used to sit down at my desk sometime and say, what is that? And my standard joke, which wasn't funny 30 years ago and isn't that funny now, is that <laughs> I had a normal keyboard I left out in the sun too long and now it's all bowed and bent in the middle. And most people would give me a strange look and I'd say, no, no, it's an ergonomic keyboard. But I actually love the idea. I think I thought they'd been quite effective over the years. I can assume that the only reason Microsoft is not making them anymore is because they're not selling enough. But my advice to all our listeners is if you've got some, and I've, I've certainly got more than one sitting around my office, more, a couple of my offices, if you've got one there, clean it up, put it back into this box, put it away in the cupboard for six months, because in six months' time when you can't get them new anymore, presumably if they stop manufacturing now, then they'll still be available for a little bit of time, they'll be going for double, triple, ten times the price on eBay I'm Vaguely confident of that being the case. <laughs> I mean, other companies so will still there'll be a big market for the ergonomic keyboard. Well, other companies still make them. So Logitech still yeah, make ergonomic enough. keyboards. So you'll have other ones. But for some reason, I've just liked the Microsoft ones. Now, they're still going to keep making their ergonomic mice. And their ergonomic mice typically look ugly. But they've tried mm. different shapes over the years to try and work out how your hand fits around a mouse. So that's been quite effective for them, I thought. But... It was always a bit strange that Microsoft got into any hardware manufacturing in the first place when they started doing keyboards. It just seemed like a bit strange. You're doing all this operating system software, productivity mm. software, and keyboards. Mm. It didn't seem to make sense, and people predicted back then it was just some little thing they experimented with and they'll get rid of it soon. Well, it took them 30 years to get around to getting rid of it, but it probably doesn't make sense for them to do it, let a company like Logitech specialise in it. But yeah, I'm still disappointed. I did like my Microsoft keyboard. So the issue is probably there's too many people with who's still doing the two-finger typing. <laughs> Maybe. They, they're not that me. effective. I'm one of them. Yeah, right. Well, they're not that <laughs> effective. Actually, I, I know I've got all my kids to do touch typing courses. Yeah. And it's one thing I often say to people that if you want to have a really quick way to increase productivity, touch typing course, most of them take 10 hours. Mm. But once you've done 10 hours of that over a couple of weeks, for example, suddenly, even if you can only type it, 60 or 70 words per minute touch typing, then it does increase your productivity quite dramatically. So I did a touch typing course back in my HSE. Right. And uh, it was on one of those electric brother, those uh, the electric typewriters. Yep, yeah. Yep. Um, and um, it was really noisy and I just <laughs> got annoyed with it and so I left it. Well, I don't like to give too many product plugs here, but TypeQuick is a company that is an Australian company. That's where I first learn to touch type and that's where I got all my kids to use. They've got online versions of it now. But what's great about it is that while you're going through and learning to touch type, it's obviously working out how quick you are on different letters. Oh, so okay. then when it gives you some tutorials at the end of each lesson, it focuses a bit more on some of the letters that you've been a bit slow with. Oh. So rather than what you might have done on an old keyboard and just go through this and do these particular exercises, this actually goes through and works on certain letters and then gives you words with those letters and then gives you a bit of refinement on ones that you're not quite good enough at. Come back tomorrow for your next lesson and away you go. And 10 days later, you've done an hour a day and suddenly you're a touch typist. Now, I've seen people touch type at incredible speeds. I'm not saying you're going to be that good, but even at 60 or 70 words per minute, it does give you some basic skills that you can be more productive with. Well, probably worth doing and perhaps you can teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> Maybe.
Here's some breaking news, folks. Toyota have tiptoed through the dawn of the EV revolution, and regular listeners will know our stance here at Tech Talk on whether the hybrid vehicle qualifies in the EV category. But Toyota ads continue to insist that they've been front runners without even releasing an actual EV model. It seems that the smoke and mirrors are now lifting, and Toyota is finally unveiling their plans for long range EVs and for hydrogen fuel cell technology. Matt, this is news that we've been waiting to hear for, for a while now. Well, I'm not convinced. I want to get your opinion on oh, this. Oh, okay. One. <laughs> All right. So they've sent out the message we're doing this. And it's a lot of noise and perhaps, yeah. Well, I do wonder whether this is more a release by their PR department rather than by their engineers. Okay. Because they've put out this claim that they're going to have 1,000 kilometre range EVs and some hydrogen fuel cell vehicles by the year 2026. Oh, now that's soon. <laughs> that's right. Now, we've got vehicles right now that you can go and buy that have got a range over 600 kilometres. We're in 2023. In three years' time, those manufacturers will keep developing those cars. I'm talking about the manufacturers that are available now with EVs. Mm. They'll keep developing those cars. They'll keep developing those batteries. The 600 kilometres will be 700 by next year and maybe eight or 900 by the year after. And then by the year 2026, they might be up to 1,000 kilometres, for example, when Toyota is saying that we'll have 1,000-kilometre range EVs by the year 2026. I wonder, and this is where I want to get your opinion on that, I wonder whether... They're finally saying, wow, we're so far behind on this. We can't catch these guys right now. They've got a huge lead on us. How can we delay? How can we get people to pause on their EV purchases, keep buying Toyotas for the next few years until we finally get the chance to catch up? I know. We'll tell everyone in the year 2026, we'll have it nailed. Just wait for us to get there. And people get excited by this. A thousand kilometers, fantastic. That's what I need in an EV. I'll wait yes, to I'll 2026. Wait. That's the big thing, isn't it? I was about to say. Am I being too cynical? Am I being too harsh on her here? Yeah, the difference between uh, being cynical and sceptical, isn't it? Uh, so I reckon, yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think um, if you can't see any hard evidence that they're actually making any tracks forward, then, um, yeah, well, my question was, is this the information we've been waiting to hear? And I think the answer is we want to hear it. <laughs> But whether or not it's there's anything behind it all, it could be all, more smoke and mirrors. It could be. And it's interesting they lead with 1,000 kilometres. Mm. There's a whole range of things yeah, that people yeah, yeah. buy EVs for. Do you really need 1,000 kilometres? When's the last time I drove 1,000 kilometres in one go? Well, never, hopefully, because that would be dangerous to do that. But is that the number one thing? And it's interesting. I was and at a why do you make that your entry level? Yeah, that's right. Why, why is that such a big thing? And they have finally got one electric vehicle, it's got about a 430-kilometre range. Right. So that's available now. But again, it just doesn't seem to compete with the other EVs in the market. But I was at a conference recently, and they had a one of the stands had a couple of Hyundai, so the Ionic 5 and the Ionic 6, and so I chatted to the Hyundai staff there. And I said, which have been your most popular models? They've got two-wheel drive, four-wheel drive, a few different options, etc. And they said, most people have been going with the two-wheel drive model. The performance isn't as good. The acceleration isn't as good. Obviously, two-wheel drive instead of four-wheel drive. But the feedback they've been getting is because the two-wheel drive model's got slightly longer range. Mm. So people are still focused on range. Mm. But whether they really want a 1,000-kilometer range, I'm not sure. I, I would love I would love Toyota to be in there in the market now because Toyota makes some great vehicles in the past. They made some great ICE vehicles. They made some great diesel vehicles, even hybrids. Fantastic. I mean, I had a Toyota Prius back in 2005. I'd love them to be in the EV game, just more competition in the EV game, but I still do think 
they're hoping it'll go away or making these mm. announcements of the future, trying to catch up a little we bit. We also speculated that they were really holding out for the hydrogen fuel cell market. Um, and we, we talked a bit about that as well. But, uh, yeah, it's just, I don't know, they're holding their cards. They've been holding their cards close to their chest. And uh, now to come out and say this sounds just like a bit of noise. Leadership sometimes delivers arrogance. And mm. I just wonder whether, well, arrogance might be too strong on them. Maybe it's just a little bit of, maybe they're just relaxed a bit. Maybe mm. they're a bit complacent even mm. because they've been number one for so long across That's the right. world. So maybe that leadership leads to complacency might be a nice Simply, yeah. rather yeah. than arrogance. <laughs> Netflix's business model has been tied in knots in recent months, and they've certainly featured heavily in our tech talking space as a result. The folks in the marketing department there have been sweating blood to retain subscribers and draw in new business, and it seems that the answer was as simple as streaming live sport, Matt. It's a fine line, isn't it, between TV and streaming. When you get to the point where streaming services are streaming live sport, then it feels that's like just it's TV. A, that's right. It feels like <laughs> it's TV. Now they have played around with a little bit with sport. Netflix. They've had Drive to Survive, incredibly popular series. F One loves it. F One. The organisation loves it because it's given a whole bunch of new people exposure to F One, mm. and then they want to really watch the F One racing. Full Swing is another one that's been a bit of sports content, but they're about to stream their first live sporting event. And by the people, the time people listen to this podcast, they will have already streamed it. It's a celebrity golf tournament in Las Vegas. So not the biggest tournament in terms of any sporting event in the world. It's not like it's a... But it's got some faces that people will recognise. That's and right. So and they're likely to tune in. And it's live sport. That's yeah, the, yeah. the big thing. It's live sport. So I, I am... Given the fact that TV stations now have got some of their streaming options, so you get TV moving into streaming a bit, you get streaming moving to live sport... Well, it's good for us as consumers because we've just got all these different options out there. But it is interesting to see how Netflix is continually challenging their business model. The other thing with Netflix at the moment is we've talked about the fact that they're cutting back on password sharing. Mum and Dad have mm. a Netflix subscription and then all the kids and their friends and their friends' friends seem to have <laughs> the same Netflix subscription. Yeah. So they've cut back on that. And there was a bit of noise about how annoyed people were about this and people were going to boycott Netflix and all sorts of terrible things. Mm. But when they started to enforce that, and this is at the end of May, they start, mm. they'd been talking about it, make announcements, get your own accounts, etc. And enforcement came in, which was the only way they would really start to push people to do it. In the four, first four days of that enforcement, then Netflix saw more new subscriptions in the US than in any other four-day period yeah, right. in the time they'd been tracking It had the opposite effect. Well, people went, I hate this, but... I want to watch that show. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I can't be without I, my Netflix. I, I better go and do it. And they've got different options. Again, one of the things I used to like about the idea of pay TV and streaming is no ads. Yes, love that mm. idea. I'm happy to pay my money for no ads. But then Netflix, as we've talked about before, has got a cheaper version of Netflix with ads. So that sounds like a TV station mm. as well. You're not mm. paying for the TV station directly. But you're getting all this confusion out there. It'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out years to come. I mean, back in the Kerry Packer and Alan Bond days, it used to be owning a TV station was just a license to print money. Just how much do you want to print this week, Mr. Packer, and we'll go and print it for you. Just run those ads. Now it's a different landscape and trying to get your product to market. It's confusing out there for companies that have got a national presence. Where do we put our product? Do we put it on streaming? Do we put it on 
TV, like normal TV stations? Do we put it on pay TV? Do we put it on social media? Where do we advertise our mm. product? There's so many different avenues now. So it is interesting. But Netflix changing, and I'm actually impressed that they are continually looking at their business model and continuing to change that to suit what consumers want. Very good, yeah. This next story is all about bringing technology to the faithful. Congregations dwindled through the 80s and 90s. Churches of various denominations saw a need to engage people using technology. And they set up souping, well, set about souping up the Sunday sermon with a dynamic visual aid and sound. Congregations have subsequently grown and grown over recent decades, and people started coming back. Perhaps the biggest manifestation of that phenomenon would be the Hillsong Mega Church. Now, full disclosure here, I'm a complete outsider, a spectator to the world of faith, but how people engage with religion today interests me very deeply. And so I'm interested to know how members of the flock would feel if services were to be led by AI. Matt, you've got some news about an AI-led service in Germany. How did that go? Well, it's interesting. There was a Protestant conference in Germany, and there was a young theologian and philosopher from the University of Vienna, and he got permission to run a full church service via AI. Didn't try and trick anyone. He had avatars on the screens in the church. I don't know what the avatars looked like. <laughs> they were some form of God, perhaps. I'm not sure. And they had 300 people come along to see how an AI-led sermon would go. And so it went through and did all the normal things, the songs, etc. And then it got to the sermon. So in a normal church service, you might expect a priest or a minister to stand there and quote some parts in the Bible and talk about some experiences that they might have had this particular week and apply that to his flock of listeners in front of him. Well, it's very big on human connection, right? So that's the whole essence of a sermon. That's what I would have thought. Mm, you think Rather so. Rather than just the information being delivered, that there's still that human connection. So they interviewed people after the service. How did it go? How did the avatar priest, how did the AI go with all of it? Now, some people said that they were positively surprised by the AI service. A few people did say it did lack a bit of heart and soul and didn't really always seem to connect with the congregation, which kind of makes sense. I'd be a bit worried if I was in a congregation and AI could connect with me. I'd be thinking, yeah. so I'm just a robot now, am I? So, yeah. But it's interesting. Now, again, we do talk a lot about AI at the moment. It seems to be a real buzz around and trying to pick AI from other normal things that might be created. But for a priest using some AI to help with his sermon, I think absolutely a priest could add some of that personal touch, bring some of those personal experiences in for AI to do it all and now we're getting something that's really interesting. We're now talking about AI, talking about spiritual beings or yeah. spirituality. And if that's not going to blow your mind in terms of artificial intelligence, basing things on facts and data, what we know, and then saying, but we want you to have faith, AI, <laughs> and create yeah. a sermon based on that. So it's about that. the spiritual experience, right? And so <laughs> can AI have a spiritual experience? Yeah. And it, if it's just words in the end, and that's exactly what this congregation felt like, there were just words there. The sermon had words in it. But did it have that real connection? Mm. Did it have that spiritual connection? Gee, I'm not convinced about that. But it is interesting to see how we're going. And would you really know? Would you know if the priest standing there delivering a sermon had actually had that written for him by some mm. AI. It'd be hard to tell. Yeah, and I well, perhaps it's just another way that we're looking at how we introduce AI into common life, mm. and um, 
and this is a bit of an experiment. Yeah, that's right. And I actually wonder what the question you might ask AI when you're talking about creating a sermon based on spirituality. Surely AI would come back and say, I have no data to support <laughs> what you're asking me to talk about there. So interesting. Mm. Here at Tech Talk, we love a good medical story. And in 2023, we know how healing needs to work in a very personal level, or at a very personal level at least, customizable, if you will. So strap yourselves in for some customizable 3D printed dressings for burn victims and personalized treatments for cancer. Matt. The only experience I've had personally with burns is when I was a terrible parent and my son crawled across the floor, so he was old enough to be crawling, mm-hmm. and that was about it. And put his hand. Full confession here. Uh, yeah, that's right. Put his hand around a space heater with the red bars going oh, across wow. that, and grabbed hold of that to lift himself up, and realised that maybe this wasn't the best thing to grab hold of. Yeah. Now, just the process for that burns across his fingers. Still got scars to this day. That would have been over twenty years ago. That happened, and the redressing he had to do, and obviously very young, but the pain that he seemed to be in yeah, every wow. time redressing. But that was a fairly limited burn compared to some people who have burns to much larger parts of their body, whether they've been in in some form of accident or something's happened to them. So one of the big things about burns is the dressing, having to redress it, and the pain people are in while they're redressing it, and also the shape of that dressing. So they've now got to the point with 3D printed dressings that they do a couple of things. The first thing they do is they do a 3D scan of the area. So, for example, if you've got a burn on a part of your face, they'll do a 3D scan of that part of your face to get the shape right. Then they'll print some dressing to be able to go on to that particular part of the face so it's exactly the right shape, not just to put a bit of padding in there, wrap a bandage around it, and that'll be okay until we have to peel it off and then go through that very painful process. The pain is then a really big part of having your healing process. So with this particular dressing, there is time-release medication in the actual dressing itself. Oh, wow. So you put the dressing on, you'll leave it for a certain amount of time, maybe a a day, I'm not sure exactly how long, but that medication will slowly be released directly into the dressing. And then, and this is the part I particularly like about it, you need to take it off. So that sounds like the worst part, the most painful part. When you cool this dressing down, they've made it out of a particular polymer that when it cools, it expands. Most things, as you know, when you cool them, they will contract. Yeah, yeah. But when you cool this particular polymer, it expands. And as you do that, it's soothing for your skin because it's cooling. Yeah. And then as it expands, it makes it easier to lift that dressing That's off. crazy. It is. Yeah, wow. Now, I know the quote I often quote from you is that if you want a future kid's material science, and that's exactly what this sounds like, creating a polymer that expands, creating a polymer that you can have medication built into it, and then using a 3D printer to get the exact shape of that polymer to suit the individual. Wow. Yeah. So we're there at that space. (laughs) Now, I know that um, there's an idea that we could possibly 3D print human cells as well, that that's a a possibility. So we're not at that stage. We're not sort of implanting human cells. We're still taking grafting and and whatnot. But with this dressing, this is is a spectacular development. And I wonder when you would go between the skin grafts that you might need and then the dressing. You might still need skin grafts first Mm. and then the dressing on top. But whatever form of burn it is, it needs to have some form of dressing on it. But then the other application they found for it is in relation to cancer treatments. I'm talking about skin cancer. And this here. is a really big one because there's so many different types of cancers, but you, this is just for skin cancer. This is designed for skin cancer because it's got that time-release medication. Now, sometimes when people have got a small skin cancer, the doctor will say, here's some cream, 
rub that on for the next week and you'll get a bit of the skin flake off and that'll have the cancerous, cancerous cells in it and then everything's okay. People have got to remember to put the cream on, mm. they've got to do it at a certain time, it's all a bit of a hassle, not a great circumstance, so the results aren't always perfect. But again, using this same 3D scanning of the area, 3D printed wound dressing, but also this time in the medication, you'd put in the cancer treatment medication, oh, wow. put that on there, you might then leave this one on for the time frame, might be a week, might be two weeks, that the medication needs to be put into your skin, you take it off, and that's the whole job done. So rather than you remembering, putting it on, have I put the right amount on, I better put a bit more on, maybe I've gone too far, all of that, then you don't need to worry about any of that, you just put it on, two weeks later, I'm not sure the time frame, but approximately two weeks later, take it off and away you go. This is amazing. It is. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we are living in the future. We are. <laughs> <laughs> the old saying is that the future is now, it's just not evenly distributed. And that's exactly right. The yeah. future is all over the place. Amazing. And with that, I'm bringing out the 30 centimetre ruler and drawing a neat line under another episode of Tech Talk. Thank you very much, Matt. Uh, my pleasure. Always my pleasure, James. And always my pleasure to see how you might finish an episode. And uh, keep your eye out for ghost drivers, folks. That might just be some guy dressed up as a car seat, of course. They're coming to a neighbourhood near you, albeit eventually. I'm James Eddy, and I have been another voice today. Thank you for your tuning in all around the world. Um, another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. We're truly grateful for your part in taking 45 minutes out of your day and loaning us your ears just for a little bit. We hope to catch you again in another week. Until then, take care and have a great week.